0: If you have a Bible or if you have some kind of app with a Bible app uh, or a, a device, excuse me, with a Bible app on there, grab those things and let's head to Acts chapter 4 together. Acts chapter 4. Regardless of who you are or what you walk in the room believing today, I think we could all agree that the Christian faith is being opposed today more than ever before. Uh, it used to be, and this wasn't that long ago, that culture at large even though they didn't believe what we believe about Jesus, at the very least agreed with our code of morality. You know, they agreed with us on things like sexuality, family, marriage, even abortion. But that's no longer the case. Uh, A shift has taken place. And this shift has resulted in our nation, in many ways, becoming a post-Christian nation. And uh, and we're seeing that more and more people out there are abandoning entirely a Christian worldview in favor of other worldviews. And just so you know, almost half, 48% of all 18 to 28-year-olds have already made that shift. And so what's happening right now is our beliefs as Christians are being viewed as old, outdated, oppressive, offensive, and deserving of opposition. Now, it's been so interesting to me to sit back and watch that shift play out. Because it's revealed in many ways that the church, the big C church, has absolutely no idea how to respond to what's taking place. And if you want proof of that, just spend 30 seconds on social media, right? The responses are often unhelpful. And in my humble opinion, they're making Jesus look bad and they're making the church look really bad. And that's why today's message and next Sunday's message are so important. We're starting a conversation today about how to respond in the face of opposition. And so if you have your Bibles open, we're going to dig in and get to work. Acts chapter 4, we're going to start reading in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, this stuff will be up on the screens. Here's what it says. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead and they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening but many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of men came to about 5000 now we'll stop there and I'll just set the scene for us all right we've been learning over the past few weeks that by this point in the book of acts Peter and John two of Jesus's disciples They're in the Jerusalem temple with a formerly crippled man, right? This guy, he had been crippled since birth. He was over 40 years old, and God supernaturally healed him. Well, everyone who knew the guy naturally came together in amazement. They congregated around Peter, around John, around this healed man, and Peter took that opportunity to speak up and explain what had happened. And he says to the crowd, listen, Jesus healed this guy. Jesus healed this guy. We called on his name And from heaven, the resurrected and glorified Jesus heard our prayer, and he responded by restoring this man's health. And then he says to the crowd, that's the Jesus you killed. Like, you all denied the holy and righteous one. You killed the author of life. You denied him. You put him on a cross. But great news, three days later, God raised him up from the dead. And now that God wants to forgive you for what you've done. How beautiful is that? That God offers forgiveness to the worst of the worst. Isn't that awesome news? Peter says, look, he wants to forgive you for, yes, even that sin. He's inviting you today into a relationship with him. He wants to give you the hope of eternal life. And all you need to do to receive those things is repent and turn in faith to him. Well, we just read in verse 4 that after Peter preaches that message, many people who heard believed. In fact, the the, the Bible says the number of believers came to about 5,000 men. If you add in women and children, you could be talking upwards of 10,000 people. That's pretty incredible, right? Well, look, not everybody thought it was incredible. There's an interesting tension that we see in this passage. you got all these people far from God meeting Jesus, and at the same time, followers of Jesus are being opposed because of it. I mean, we read it, right, that Peter and John, as they're speaking to the people, that the priest, the captain of the temple, he's like temple security, his job was to maintain order in the temple, along with the Sadducees, they came upon Peter and John greatly annoyed. Now, why were they annoyed? Well, it's simple. They were part of the religious establishment responsible for killing Jesus. And when they killed him, I mean, I'm sure they thought, our problems are over, don't have to deal with that crazy Jesus guy anymore, running around telling everybody, he's God, and I'm sure that his disciples aren't going to show up to try and keep this thing going. Well, they realize in this moment, uh-oh, problem didn't go away. And in fact, new and bigger problems were just beginning. That annoyed them, but they were annoyed for a second reason. Uh, the priests, many of them were Sadducees, by the way. Uh, the Sadducees and the priests didn't believe in resurrection. And so here you got Peter and John in the temple preaching something opposite of what they taught in the temple every day. you got these guys saying, not only did Jesus rise from the dead, but if you believe in him, one day you can experience resurrection from the dead. In their annoyance, they come upon Peter and John, they arrest them, and they throw them in prison for the night. So with the scene set, I want to bring it back to the question, how do we, as Christ followers, respond in the face of opposition? Well, the first thing is this. When opposition comes, we have to recognize it as a guarantee. And I would even say before it comes, we need to recognize it as a guarantee. You know, I find it so interesting that Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, makes no mention of how Peter and John responded to their arrest. Just doesn't bring it up, right? No details around it. It's like, hey, they were arrested on the next day. It's like, bro, what happened? Like, give us some insight. Well, part of me wonders, you know, did Luke skip that part because he didn't know how it all went down? Or did he skip it because Peter and John went quietly and there wasn't really much to write about? I tend to believe the latter, that Peter and John went quietly and there wasn't much to write about because they saw uh, opposition as a guarantee. And I'll make my case, all right? Acts 1, verse 8. We covered that verse in the very first week of this series. Jesus says to his disciples, When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power. And then he goes on to say, And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the end of the earth. Well, that word witnesses in verse 8, it comes from the Greek word "martus." It's where we get our English word martyr. Do you know what a martyr is? Someone who dies for their faith in Christ. So Jesus says to his disciples, that's what you're going to be for me. You're going to be my witnesses, my my martyrs. And where's the first place he sends them? Jerusalem. Well, what had just happened in Jerusalem before that conversation? Jesus was killed and crucified by his opponents. I mean, you think the disciples were too thrilled about Jesus sending them back into that city to be his so-called witnesses? I have a hard time believing that because they knew, look, if we go back, if we go back, opposition, it's a guarantee. It'd be like me sitting you down in my office this week and, and saying to you, we really believe that God is calling our church to start a new work in Syria. We're going to go there and we're going to share the gospel with ISIS. And yes, we know they're sawing off the heads of Christians right now, but great news, we picked you to go as our first missionary, <laughs> huh? Would you be thrilled about that? Probably not. And Why? Because you would know, man, if I go, if I go, opposition, it's guaranteed. Now look up here. I need you to understand today that opposition is not only guaranteed in places like Jerusalem and Syria. It's also guaranteed here in the United States. It may look different here than it does in other places. But listen to me. If you choose to live on mission for the sake of Christ, you should expect opposition. Opposition. And I'll make a biblical case so that you don't think I'm lying to you. All right, let me just read some verses. These will be up on the screen. This is Jesus in John 15 talking to his disciples. He says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you? A servant is not greater than his master." If they persecuted me, guess what? They'll also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Romans 8, 35 through 36. Look at what Paul describes. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, so it goes Bible on them. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That doesn't sound very pleasant, does it? No, not at all. Look, look, keep reading. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 11. Here's Paul writing again. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. I love 2 Timothy 3.12 because it's so clear. Look at this. Indeed, Paul saying to Timothy, bro, I'm telling you the truth. Not lying to you. Count on this. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. Persecuted. Philippians 1.29, for it's been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Paul's going, hey, God's given you suffering as a gift. It's crazy. It's weird, right? Don't worry. We'll make sense of it later. It'll, it'll start to unfold. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 14. We'll stop here with this one. This is Peter, the same Peter in the book of Acts that we've been reading about. Here's what he says to the Jerusalem church. Beloved do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. This is insane to me. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. You're blessed because the Spirit of glory and the Spirit of God rest upon you. Do you hear the threat? You hear the promise? Hey, you want to live for Jesus? Yeah, expect the world to hate you for it. Expect suffering to come. Expect opposition. Expect persecution. The mistake that I see so many Christians making right now in our country is this. Opposition has come, and they now act surprised as if something strange were happening. This is so weird. No, it's not. The only reason any of us think it's weird is because we've never experienced anything like it in our lifetime. But according to God, it's normal for the Christ follower. It's normal for us to experience opposition as we try to live for the sake of Christ in this world. And so I think that as Christians, what we need to do is realize the promises of God. And in light of that, do ourselves a favor and everybody else a favor. And we need to stop whining about it. There has to come a point when we wake up and we realize that wallowing around in self-pity does nothing to advance the mission of God in the world. Again, let me just be clear. You want to live for Jesus? You want to help people far from God, find their way back to Him? Expect people to hate you for it. And when they do, don't cause a scene and don't waste time feeling sorry for yourself. My encouragement would be take on the countenance of, of Peter and John. Just go quietly. Just remember Jesus promises. He said it would happen, and I can consider myself blessed right now. I can rejoice because I get to share in the sufferings of Christ, which means I'm like him, and the Spirit of God is resting upon me. The second response is this. Opposition comes, you rely on the power of the Spirit. You rely on the power of the Spirit. Uh, I'm going to make sense of this for us from the passage, but I'm also going to explain the importance of getting this right we have to get this right so much hangs on this go back to the passage we're going to pick back up verse 5 says on the next day so now Peter and John they're out of jail on the next day their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family and when they had set them in the midst Peter and John they're in the midst of these men Uh, they inquired, by what power or what name did you do this? They want to know, how did you heal this guy? We know him. He's been crippled since birth, 40 years old, outside the temple every day, begging us for money. How did you heal him? And then Peter, look at it, verse verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. We're going to stop there for just a moment and talk filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter and John, they're standing before 71 of the most influential, powerful leaders in the country of Israel. This was the Jewish high court. And the court, as I just explained, questioned them on the man's healing. And the Bible says, then Peter, then Peter what? Then Peter told them what jerks they were for having him and John arrested. Uh, then Peter said to the religious court, hey, we're going to sue you for infringing upon our religious freedoms, and we're going to hold a protest outside the temple as soon as we're out of here, and we're going to Instagram the whole thing. That's not what it says. It just says, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. What a significant statement. You see, the problem that I see playing out too often in our culture today is this. Opposition comes, and then Christians respond not by relying on the Spirit, but they respond with retaliation. That person hurt me, I'm going to hurt them. That person spoke against me, I'm going to speak against them. That person offended me, I'm going to do my best to offend them. Why do we do this? We do it to make a point, right? We do it because we want to win, we want to be heard. It's all born from a, a very prideful, selfish, egotistical place. Like, we want to have the last word, and we want ultimately to put our opponents to shame. It's insane, but, but we see this playing out constantly. I heard a speaker this past week at a conference I was at say something that resonated with me in regards to this. He said, you can make a point or you can make a difference. But in order to make a difference, it requires relationship. Relationship. I think you'll agree with me, it's really difficult to establish relationships with your opponents when you're busy retaliating against them, isn't it? Yeah, and it's why Jesus calls us to a different way. In Matthew chapter 5, he reminds us at the end of that chapter that when we signed up to follow him, we laid down our right to retaliation. And what we picked up in its place is a responsibility to love, serve, and pray for not all those people out there that necessarily like us, But our opponents, Jesus calls us to love, serve, and pray for, yes, our enemies. That's hard, isn't it? And can I be honest? It's not necessarily one of those commands from Jesus that I like. And it's not one that I can follow or you can follow on your own power or your own strength. It's why we desperately need to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit in moments of opposition. In Galatians 5.16, Paul writes this to the church at Galatia. He says, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Very easy to understand that verse in theory. Very hard to practice. Here's the idea. He's saying, look, if you'll just follow the Holy Spirit's leading, if you'll walk every moment of every day in the power he supplies, you won't sin. How incredible is that? And I'll make it practical. I'll bring it ground level so that you hear how it works. Uh, Let's say that 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 temptation comes your way. You really want to sin. Well, in that moment, there's a decision to be made, right? You can either sin, just go ahead and give in. Uh, You can rely on your own power in hopes of not sinning, which never works, by the way. Or you can rely on the power of the Holy Spirit, which always works. So let's say you go with option number three. And in that moment of temptation, you run to the Lord and you just say to him in prayer, God, I really want to do this thing right now. I want to look at porn. I want to sleep with a person I'm not married to. Uh, I want to be selfish. I want to be greedy. I want to lie about that thing that this person has asked for the truth on. God, I want to do it, but I don't want to do it. Like I, I want to do it, but I know if I do it, Jesus will be dishonored, and it's not going to be good for me or anyone else. Has anyone ever been there other than me? Like you want to sin, but you don't want to sin. Welcome to the Christian life. Welcome to your flesh and your spirit warring against one another constantly. To Paul's point, if you want to win that war, you know what you do? You walk by the Spirit. You walk by the Spirit in those moments of temptation. You come to God and, and you say, God, here's what I really want to do. And if I'm not going to do it, Holy Spirit, you better show up in my life right now and give me the power I need to say no to this sin. I was talking to a couple guys in our church about this very thing uh, just in recent weeks. And our conversations reminded me of how good Satan, our enemy, truly is at getting us to rely on ourselves versus the Holy Spirit in moments of temptation. It's crazy. He'll lie to us and he'll say to us, uh, you can't go to God right now if you want to do that thing. Like you kidding me? What is God going to think of you if you go to him right now and tell him that you're thinking about doing that? As if God doesn't already know. Right? Silly. But oftentimes we'll listen. We'll buy the lies of the enemy and we'll try to stand in our own power and in our own strength and we'll fail. And then we'll feel bad. So in our guilt and in our shame, we'll run to God and we'll ask for forgiveness all because we failed to ask him for power in a moment when we needed it the most. Can I help you today? Can I help you today? Look, temptation comes and you want to sin? run to God. Run to God and know that God wants you to run to him in that moment. I mean, parents, think about your own kids. When they need help, when they need you, when something's going on in their lives and and they don't know where to turn, don't you want them to come to you in that moment? You'll never say to your kid, hey, I'll tell you what, why don't you leave with whatever it is you're struggling with, go figure it out on your own, and once you've gotten it all together, then you can come back and we'll talk. You would never do that. As a parent, don't you love your kid enough to say, when you need me, you come running? God says the same to us. In that moment, when you need me, you better come running. I don't care what you're thinking about doing. I don't care what you want to do. You run to me, and I'll give you all the power you need through the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you to say no to that sin. Now, let's apply that to opposition and the sin of retaliation. You do understand that retaliation is a sin, right? All right, so here's what you do. Opposition comes. In that moment, you get really honest with the Lord. God, here's what I want to do. This person is coming against me, and God, I really want to lose my mind on them, right? Uh, I want to tell her off. I want to flip him off. I want to punch him in the throat. Like, I want to comment on their stupid Facebook post. God, this is what I want to do. Just a quick side note here. Listen, I think if more Christians prayed before they posted on social media, we wouldn't see half the stuff we see on there right? He's trying to help you. I love you. Some of us need to hear that. Those moments, you run to the Lord, and you get really honest, and you say, here's what I want to do. God, I want to retaliate, and if I'm not going to retaliate, then God, you got to show up right now in my life and give me the power I need to do the opposite. You rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. Third response. When opposition comes, you relay the good news of Jesus. I love this. It's not just those miraculous moments that open the door for the message of Jesus to be shared, as we've seen in recent weeks. It's also moments of opposition that open the door for the message of Jesus to be shared. And so you relay the message. And who do you relay the message to? Your opponents. And why? Because it's usually your opponents who are most need of Jesus, in most need of Jesus to do something in their lives that only he can do. This was certainly true in Acts 4. I mean, here we find Peter and John standing before a group of religious men who had killed Jesus without realizing who he uh, was or how much they needed him. And so Peter, he does his best to help them understand. Go back to the passage. We'll pick back up in verse 8. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders... If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation. This is key. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I love this. In these verses, Peter, he uses some Old Testament language found in Psalm 118 and Isaiah 28 about stones and builders. And he basically says to these religious leaders, you've built this entire religious system, this entire religious structure, and the whole thing was supposed to be built on Jesus, the cornerstone. Yet you've discarded and thrown away the cornerstone, and I need you to know without him, the whole thing crumbles. The whole thing falls apart. Your system can't save anyone, only Jesus saves. Look, that's the message that sets our faith apart. Sets our faith apart from every other religion in the world. Every other religion says here's the system you follow, here are the rules to obey. And if you'll just follow the system and obey these rules, uh, maybe, just maybe, some God out there will accept you and you'll end up in some better place at the end of your life. Christianity, on the other hand, says there's no system. There's only a Savior. And his name is Jesus. He lived the life you couldn't live, a perfect, sinless life. He died the death you deserved in your place for your sins. And then three days later, God raised him up from the dead to conquer sin, death, and hell on your behalf. So if you want salvation, if you want new life and eternal life, Don't waste your time trying to be a good person because you can't ever be good enough for God. Don't waste time trying to follow a bunch of rules to appease God because that won't work. Instead, you call on the name of Jesus. And Jesus will hear from heaven and he will respond by restoring you back to God. He'll he'll save you and he'll give you all those things that you're so desperate for. Now look up here for a moment. If you're going to share that message with your opponents, you know what that means? means you have to love your opponents. If you don't love your opponents, you'll never speak up and share that message. You have to love them enough not to retaliate because retaliation shuts down opportunities to share the gospel. Instead, you speak up in love, in grace, in kindness, in care, in compassion, and you share that message with your opponents. You see, if you refuse to speak up and you stay silent, through your silence, you say to your opponents, "Uh, Hey, opponent, you can just go to hell. And look, we cannot be those people. God didn't treat us that way. When we were stuck in our sin, busy opposing him, he didn't retaliate. He didn't remain silent. Instead, he made a huge statement when he put his love for us on display at the cross in crushing his son uh, for the sake of our iniquities. Huge statement. And when we're opposed, we have a similar opportunity. This is so difficult. Like, I don't want to act like it's easy. It's easy. It's hard, and I'm trying to be honest about that, which is why you need to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to get this right. But we have an opportunity when opposition comes to do this, to lay our lives down in love for our opponents that they might become our brothers and sisters in Christ. Finally, response four. When opposition, opposition comes, you have to see it as an opportunity to radiate confidence in Jesus our Lord. You have to see it as an opportunity to radiate confidence In Jesus our Lord. Uh, I'll make sense of this by going back to the passage. Look verses 13 and 14. I love these verses by the way. Uh, These are two of my favorite verses in the whole book of Acts. Look at it. It says, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, again that's the Jewish high court, all these religious leaders, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. That word boldness that you see in verse 13, it comes from the Greek word parousia. And it means a Holy Spirit inspired courage or confidence to speak in spite of threat or danger. That's what these men were astonished by. They weren't astonished at at Peter and John's education because they weren't educated. They weren't astonished at their uncommon ability because they didn't have uncommon ability. These were fishermen, Peter and John. They were two blue-collar good old boys that could have grown up with us right here in Bartow County. Nothing impressive about them which should encourage some of us. Because some of us believe that lie that if we're going to be used by God, we've got to be highly educated, extraordinary people, and it's garbage. Can I tell you what it takes to be used by God? Here's all it takes. Love Jesus, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Love Jesus, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Love Jesus, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter and John were two men deeply in love with Jesus, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit gave them parousia, a boldness to speak confidently in face of the hostility they were experiencing. And these men were taken back. They were taken back. Now, the implication of the end of verse 13 is this that their boldness was a byproduct of being with Jesus. Their boldness was a byproduct of being with Jesus. So they had been with Jesus, and as a result of being with Jesus, the Holy Spirit gave them a confidence to speak uh, courageously in spite of what they faced. Here's the question I want to raise for us as we get ready to close here in a minute. When opposition comes your way, do people recognize you've been with Jesus? Do so they recognize you've been with Jesus? Do you exude this supernatural confidence given to you by the Holy Spirit that allows you to stand courageously in the face of hostility? Maybe the more important question is this. Have you been with Jesus? Do you make it a point each and every day to just spend time in his presence? Not because you got to, but because you get to. You enter his presence through worship, through prayer, through prayer reading the Bible through hanging out with other believers in Christ who love Jesus? Have you been with him? You see, you can't be confident in him until you've first been with him. And after you've been with him, that's when the Holy Spirit fills you with that confidence. I love that verse 14 says, here are these two fishermen standing before the religious uh, Jewish high court, and this court takes notice of their confidence, and they also see the evidence of Jesus' work in and through their lives in that formerly crippled man. And what was the result? We can't oppose you any longer. We have nothing left to say in opposition. That's the goal, my friends, that we would see uh, opposition as a guarantee. And that when it comes, we wouldn't be surprised by it, but that we would instead rely on the Holy Spirit and stand in the power he gives us And in that power that we would speak confidently the good news of Jesus to people who need it the most. And as they hear it and and they see the evidence of what God has done in our lives, that they would choose to stop opposing us and come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. That's the goal. That's the goal. Yesterday I I was having breakfast uh, with some people from our church who are new here. Is our newcomer breakfast. Love hanging out with people who are just showing up. And we had a conversation for a few minutes similar to the one we're having today. And I said to them, I said to them, I am convinced that the church is at a crucial point. Like we have to get this right because if we get it wrong, the church here in our country will continue to nosedive into the ground. See, for far too long now, we've stood on platforms like this and we've gotten on our soapboxes and we've hid behind our keyboards And our mindset, I think, has been maybe we can uh, shout our opponents down if we'll just get loud enough. Maybe if we'll hold our picket signs a little higher, they'll stop what they're doing. Maybe if we blast them well enough intellectually, uh, we we can convince them that we're right and they're wrong. Look at me, that has to stop. That has to stop. It's not going to work. Actually, it stopped working a long time ago. What we've got to be willing to do is come out from behind the keyboards. We've got to come off our platforms. We've got to get off of our soapboxes, and we have to engage our opponents in a relational way. James, why do we do that? That's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus calls us to. And if we have any hopes of reaching the world out there, we've got to leave spaces like this on Sundays and take seriously the mission God has called us to. So we need help, don't we? Because that's hard and that terrifies some of us. And what I know is we can't do it alone. We need him. We need him. And so we're going to ask him today for the help we need. I'm just going to invite us all over the room to bow our heads, to close our eyes. Prayer team, wherever you are in the room, I would just invite you to come. As we're settling in, let me give you a couple things to pray about and to pray for. Maybe you're the person sitting in your seat right now and as you've listened, you've realized I have done a horrible job responding to those opponents in my life. And you know that God's got to change that about you. In the next few moments, why don't you just pray and ask God to do that? Just confess it. God, I've been retaliating for far too long. I've been responding to people in pride and and selfishness, God, because I want my voice to be heard. Just tell them, God, I don't want that to be the case any longer. I I want Jesus to be seen, and I want Jesus to be heard. And so, God, do a work in my life today that that might be true about me. Here's the other ask. Why don't we as a church start praying for our opponents by name? Maybe it's a group of people that that you feel strongly about and you need God to break your heart for them. Ask God to do that. I have found that if I really want to start loving someone well, I need to pray for them first. And as I pray, God starts to break my heart for that person or those people. And so I want to invite you in the next few moments, I'm going to do this myself. I'm going to get on my knees right here at the front of this room. And I'm going to keep praying for my opponents. God, break my heart. Help me to love them. Help me to show them grace and kindness. Give me wisdom in moments when I want to retaliate, to know how to respond and what to say. And and God, help me to rely on the Spirit, not myself. And so I would just say, if there's an opponent in your life or opponents in your life, and you want to come, and you want to join me at the front of this room, and you want to pray for them, and ask God to break your heart for them, then you come. Our prayer team is available if you need prayer. I'd love to just place a hand on you and pray over your life. Father God, I just pray in the next few moments that you would have your way in this place. God, give us the courage and humility we need to respond in whatever way you're leading us. God, we don't want to miss what you want to do in and through our church. So God, we're saying to you, we need you in order to get this right. So would you show up today, change us. It starts with us. God, we give you this time. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.